Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today we are interviewing Matt Lebon, who is the owner and founder of Custom Foodscaping, a full service edible landscaping company in St. Louis, Missouri. Matt got his start with farming as a Peace Corps volunteer in Paraguay. He went on to study permaculture and work on several farms in Israel and Brooklyn, New York. In 2017, Custom Foodscaping was born out of a dream of utilizing more of St. Louis's urban and suburban space for gardens that produce an abundance of food. Matt is most passionate about creating magical food moments in the everyday places we work, learn, and play. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. And we met when you were actually in St. Louis working on a farm there. Yeah, that was at the Earth Dance Organic Farm School. Yeah. And uh, you were managing at that point. And uh, obviously that's a mixed farm that does everything from vegetables. You guys have some perennial food strips there, but you also have a very heavy emphasis on education, which was really cool. Um, but kind of, were you playing with stuff there to kind of that implement into your, your new business? Yeah, absolutely. I, that was kind of, um, you know, like I think so many of us who were really interested in, you know, permaculture and perennial food crops <laughs> and things like that. Um, I remember when I was getting my start, you know, there was no way to really get a job doing that. And I certainly Mm -hmm, didn't have money mm -hmm. or knowledge enough to go get some land and just start planting trees that wouldn't yield anything. So the next best thing was to kind of learn vegetables. And um, so that's what I did. And that's how I ended up at the Earth Dance Organic Farm School. And that was, yeah, basically like an incredible trial ground for me to do all the things I was actually most interested in, which is fruit trees and perennial vegetables Mm -hmm. and specifically like uncommon, um, food plants, you know, that yeah. that's just the kind of thing that excites me most. And luckily, yeah, Earth Dance is a 14 acre farm school in the suburban St. Louis. And there was just every opportunity to kind of ex- do all that experimenting while I was there. Yeah, that was super cool. All right. Let's talk a little bit about, about your history and your background though. So Peace Corps, talk to us about that experience. Yeah, that was a really powerful experience for me. Most definitely the the experience that kind of set me on this path, it was, um, I got a rural farming assignment and okay. it was, um, working with sugarcane farmers. And, um, you know, as soon as I kind of got out to that area, I realized just how incredibly knowledgeable and, um, skilled all of my farming neighbors were, you know, not only did they have their own farms where they were growing produce, but they, you know, had mixed livestock and they all had, you know, mango trees around their house and they all had chickens, you know, picking up all the the scraps. And um, Mm -hmm. it just was like all just a huge click of like, this makes so much more sense. You know, I I think a lot of us young Peace Corps volunteers have that idea of like, you know, being idealistic and thinking we're going to be able to go help. And, um, Mm -hmm. and as was the case with me, we, you know, I realized I I really was there to make friends and build, you know, try to, be a part of a, a, a community and um, yeah, just learned so much about farming and gardening. And at every step of the way, I was just blown away. And so much of what was amazing to me was just all the fruits and, you know, just every citrus and papayas. And like I said, mm-hmm. the mangoes are a huge thing. And all of it just seemed like just so delicious. And like, you didn't have to work that hard to get all of this produce. 
And um, that kind of sent me down the whole rabbit hole of perennial agriculture and perennial gardening and, and how can we make investments in perennial crops and, um, and have, you know, yields for years to come with, um, you know, hopefully minimal effort. Sometimes, you know, obviously that, that's a kind of a dream that gets shattered pretty quickly once you get in the thick of it. But I think there's some aspects of it that can be, that can ring true. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about sugarcane, because that's obviously a crop that I'm interested in. It's, uh, it's tropical, right? They grow it in Florida, obviously down where you were. Talk to me a little bit about the cultivation. Is that like um, planted by rhizome or is it seed? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's planted by rhizome. And I would have to say that, you know, when I was getting into it, I did not really have the eyes to know exactly what mm-hmm. I was seeing. You know, you're just like, I don't even have words for these things. And so many of the words I was learning were not in English um, anyway. So I, I was just, um, I'm not a great at, a, you know, um, source of knowledge for the sugarcane. Um, mm-hmm. But it was, um, what I can say is it was, it was vastly planted and it's a huge, tall, firm grass. And it's, you know, the sugarcane farming neighbors I had would spend their days hunched over chopping sugarcane with a machete and loading ox carts and taking it to the little um, sugarcane factory that was um, mm-hmm. in the town. And then they press it to pull the juice and then they boil off the water and make it into sugar or is it made into more of a syrup? No, it's made into the actual, like the actual stuff that you get right in the bag at the, at the supermarket. Oh, wow. Very cool. All right. So now those farms you were working with, were they trying to be like, you know, um, integrative with the sugarcane or was it more like the conventional large plantation? Yeah. Great question. The, so it was, um, all the sugarcane around me was fair trade grown. Awesome. Okay. So, you know, um, what that means is that they couldn't be monocrop farmers. Yeah. Um, and pretty much all my neighbors were small landholders probably had, you know, somewhere between a few acres, maybe up to 10 or 20 acres. Um, and definitely I feel like whether they, you know, they knew it or not, like they were, they were not all in on the sugar cane. It was a, you know, commodity market, even though it was fair trade, it was still, you know, they'd get a different price every year. And of course they're just completely subject to mm-hmm. international trade and demand. Uh, so I think they did a really good job of not just planting that and almost everybody had a, a garden. Um, mm-hmm everybody definitely had animals and fruit trees. And those were, those were seen as, you know, really important. I think that animals more than anything were seen as currency because that was, that was a thing that if you had an animal and you could feed an animal, you know, that could, that could feed you for a long time. And when I say animals, I'm I'm talking about bigger animals, cows, pigs, um, when I, in that reference. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So then what kind of things did you bring back from, obviously you talked a little bit about, you know, the, just the incredible bounty that's around us, but were there any techniques that you brought back from, from that experience? I think the main technique is the, just kind of the idea of agroforestry and, Mm -hmm. you know, multi-story agriculture and the idea of, um, interplanting trees in amongst more annual crops or more forage crops. So I saw, I definitely saw things where there would be, um, you know, forage grasses planted underneath papaya trees and seeing cows, you know, move through that system and eat all of that grass down, of course, do their thing with the manure. And then, um, that, 
you know, managing pasture in that way, while also, of course, fertilizing and in, in the, the trees that are around in the system. Yeah. And yeah, that was just that, that seemed kind of much more like a normal thing than it was like some progressive new idea. That's just how they did it. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when did you feel like you started getting into more of the permaculture side of things? Did you even know at that point what permaculture was or? I did. I, I was, um, my very first week of like training in the Peace Corps, we went to a, like a permaculture inspired, um, like homestead. Okay. And that was like the experience that kind of blew my mind. You know, there was this guy who had spent some time um, abroad and his family had a little homestead and he had kind of gone on and traveled the world a little bit in, in a way that a lot of Paraguayans have not and brought back knowledge of <clears throat> permaculture and integrated systems. And he became, he kind of teamed up with his dad and became this force for education and they were doing tours and they um, were really into creating biogas using mm -hmm. pig manure and all, and they, you know, had a few little goats and they, we helped milk the goats and they brought out the cheese and the, um, the cottage cheese and stuff like that. And it was just a really, really powerful experience that kind of just helped me see how, um, powerful it is to tend to the land, to connect with the animals and the plants around you. And, um, that was really kind of what set me on the course. And then I kind of was lucky enough to get hooked up with some podcasts and books and stuff like that for the rest of my time there in Paraguay. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Let's talk about, um, you know, the transition. And I think this is something that some people like don't get is that there is a very easy way to start integrating some of these perennial crops into, let's say, even like a conventional, and I guess I would say conventional in the aspect that okay, obviously you're growing organically, but you know, you've got your hundred foot beds and, you know, 30 inch hundred foot beds. How can you start? What are easy ways to implement some of those perennial cropping systems into that? Well, I think that um, a lot of times the, the easy way is to basically kind of think about what size blocks you're working in, mm -hmm. in uh, based on your scale. So, you know, the that could be blocks of every 50 feet. It could be blocks of every 200 feet, um, depending on kind of what tractors and different equipment you're using and just sacrificing or we should say giving a few rows of vegetables away for the integration of perennial crops. So kind of what that looks like is for maybe you, you give three beds away, the middle bed becomes where you actually plant the crops and then the other two beds become, you know, tractor access pathways. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, for us, we've broken up most things into eight bed blocks and um, now we're moving to one of those eight beds is going to be where the perennial crops are. Um, you know, obviously we're doing elderberries, willows, um, you know, some of the perennial flowers, um, some of the smaller berries and that sort of thing. Um, and then that also is a great place. We leave like four or six feet at the end and that's, uh, put down the, um, landscape fabric. And that's where, you know, the, um, rocks for that block go the bags of rocks, you know, the row cover gets put, you know, that kind of stuff. So we keep all the stuff for each block together, um, irrigation manifolds, that kind of stuff. So just trying to make that, you know, it's obviously we're pulling that out, but it's also been a very multi-purpose block, uh, strip for us. Yeah. That makes total sense, especially with the fabric, because obviously weed control around all the junk yep. that accumulates on a veggie farm is very challenging to manage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously it's a slow kind of, you know, we're figuring things out as we go. So we're changing things up, but, um, you know, I think the other thing too, a lot of wasted spaces on the edge of greenhouses, 
Um, you know, if you got some crops that don't mind a little bit of shade over to the South side and don't mind getting like in the Northern space, you have to leave that space open for snow. But as long as you know, don't have to get in there with a the tractor to clear that snow. If you know, if it's just going to pile up then you easily can put some crops underneath that, that, you know, die back or don't mind that, you know, getting uh, covered with snow. So all sorts of options. I think it's, I think what it is, Matt, is it's just us experimenting, you know, cause there's so many different crops that we could be growing that, you know, I think a lot of these people look at salad greens and obviously for us, that's the number one crop we sell, but there's also the, a lot of these crops, which, you know, you don't, there's no maintenance and then pretty much you just once a year harvest or, you know, very, very little maintenance, just cleaning, you know, keeping them weeded or something. Um, and then, you know, get income off of them. Yeah. I love that you're doing that. Some of those <clears> crops are, are really easy. Some of those ones like elderberry, you know, if you have enough yeah. land-based to, <clears throat> to make it work. Yeah, exactly. But you're right. I think to that point, you have to have the land base for that because some of those crops do take more space. Like you did the design here for our place, for our foodscaping, which was awesome. Um, but when some of those trees you look at is, you know, how big is that canopy? And so you got to think back, okay, so how long is that shadow? And so you have to work back from that. And obviously some of those bigger stuff you put on the north edge and the west edge of the property, because we're not really trying to get sun from those edges as much as let's say the south and the east. So, you know, those are all the kinds of things to think about as you're kind of putting this whole, whole plan together. Um, so let's talk about your current business now, the custom foodscaping. Um, you design obviously beautiful, attractive, edible landscapes. And if you go to your website, what's your website again? It's customfoodscaping.com. All right, customfoodscaping.com. If you go there, you can actually see some examples of what you guys have done, and it's fabulous. Um, and then your, your Instagram and Facebook are great as well. Um, so talk to us about some of your favorite projects you've done. Some of our favorite projects. So I think that the first thing I think of are restaurants, um, which is kind of the most fun for me. We've planted, um, you know, we worked with a few restaurants and planted some uncommon food crops. And, you know, if you're coming from, the veggie world like me, where you're growing, you know, for farmer's market into restaurants ahead of time, you kind of mm -hmm. know that restaurants are the early adapters. They want the funky things. They want the unique things. They don't care that people haven't heard about it. They're going to, you know, that's actually exciting to them. Whereas so many of our suburban clients, if I tell them, you know, I think, you know, we should plant a jujube here. They're like, what? I don't, I think we'll just stick with the apples, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the restaurants. So that was a really fun, easy transition for me. Um, so we worked with a few restaurants that were kind of work, that were focusing on farm to table things. And, um, and like I said, you know, I was thinking of the jujubes because the first restaurant we worked with, we did plant a few jujubes and those have been a really fun, successful crop. They've been able to harvest the last few years now. And, um, and they're very low, no maintenance in terms of pest and disease. Um, we've, we've worked with a few YMCAs mm -hmm. and, that's been really fun. This spring, we did a sensory garden for a YMCA where we planted um, all kinds of different, different like colorful things, different berries, and we're working with them on signage to make sure that people have the opportunity to um, understand what's going on. You know, purple asparagus and uh -huh. just you know a raspberry patch with five different types of colors of raspberries. Just different things that um, are are fun for people, and and those are the things that we really love. You know places where we can be in public and, you know, really help expose people to new and different ideas. Um, I would say um, we, we also do, you know, a lot of really great um, residential product projects that yeah. I do really love, especially when they're, they're just so excited about it. You know, we've had some projects this spring 
just doing kind of like raised bed garden installations that um, some, for a lot of people, it's kind of like a dream to have a garden, you know, it's just been one of those things that they've always, Mm. Uh, they've always wanted to get it going and they don't really have maybe the, uh, maybe they got two, you know, kids that are keeping them really busy or it's just really intimidating what kind of soil and how do I get rid of the grass and so many different things that, mm-hmm. um, so we've, we've definitely had some fun projects with that as well this year. Yeah. Now uh, let's talk about like you recently, I saw some pictures, you did like a wagon wheel in someone's front yard, which was super cool. Oh, I love truck. that you thought it was a wagon wheel shape. I didn't think about that. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what was it supposed to be? <laughs> um, man, what was it supposed to be? I think she was like, so it was kind of partly inspired by the client who was kind of like into, yep. um, just really wanted like organic flowing shape, did not mm-hmm. want a square. And, um, so we kind of just like played around with different images we saw online and, and then it ended up being way bigger than anything we'd seen. And, yeah. uh, and so we got kind of like what, what kind of seems to me more like this, you know, s- geometrical shape. <laughs> it was our first time getting out the, uh, getting out our geometry skills. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that's interesting because I just thought it was wagon wheel because St. Louis, you know, gateway to the West, blah, blah. But um, anyway, yeah, it, w- it was cool though. Just kind of how you had that set up. Um, because I think the cool thing is, is so uh, we're coming out of an age. I feel like everything's like, you know, uniform and set up. And now we're coming to a more, I think more of a creative area era where, you know, we just do so much more cool stuff. I mean, like a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed, um, Brooklyn Grange, you know, talking about farming on rooftops, you know, those are the kinds of things which are just, you know, really starting to, I think, become more useful and working really, really well. Yeah. I think, I think it's kind of a, an imperative that we figure out ways of growing food that are, are new in that sense, because, um, if, if we don't innovate in that way, I think we're going to miss the boat on getting food growing into so many people's, you know, life experience. We, we have so many, so many of our clients, I think, you know, I talk to people and they grew up with a kind of grandma and grandpa's like garden plot out, you know, way back behind the house and Mm -hmm. chicken wire fence and overgrown and weedy and, um, maybe bountiful as well, but not really something they can see in their urban and suburban context. Yeah. So I think that's kind of what is incumbent upon us is like kind of recontextualizing what that, how, what, what it looks like to grow food. Yeah. Now, another part of this too, is rainwater management, especially for obviously the, the, the gardener, the home, home grower. Um, what kind of techniques are you using for that? For rainwater, I'm sorry, rainwater management. Yeah. So generally we are doing two different things. You know, we're set up like rain tank systems off of people's gutters and things like that. Um, and a lot, of, and then we can, you know, use a little pump to get that tied into an irrigation system. Mm-hmm. We, all of our, all of our gardens pretty much come with a, an irrigation system, which is usually mind blowing to people. They never thought they could just have automatic yeah. watering. And um, the other big thing that we do is like rain gardens or, or even just kind of like bioswales, you know, sometimes we're yeah. doing very minor things where we're just by putting a landscape bed kind of on contour and raising it up, you know, all of a sudden now we're diverting tons of water coming off the roof that was going straight down into the street. And mm-hmm. it's going, um, now to water a bunch of plants before it actually leaves the property. If it leaves at all. Yeah. Yeah. Recently in our town is, um, our town's 
growing very fast. We actually just became a city again from being actually a, a village, um, but they're always putting in new houses and they recently didn't size their dry well systems right. And so it was flooding across the road. <clears throat> so obviously the solution for them was let's just go and build a bigger retention pond where if they had been thinking, can we put contours throughout this entire neighborhood because this entire neighborhood sitting on a gravel pit anyway. So all you have to do is slow the water down. Yeah. And that would have been so much, you know, and then we, anyway, but obviously that's, you know, that's the current mythology is let's just, you know, get our big earth machines out and dig some more massive pits. Yeah. So um, anyway, just always interesting to watch how, how this, how that kind of evolves. Yeah. We just don't, it's just mind blowing that when in the construction field, you know, we don't think about water and sun when we build yeah. a house or, or plan a neighborhood. It's just yeah. like, yep. So silly. Yeah. I mean, one of the things you did for our plan was hops on our south side of our house. And that was brilliant because obviously they grow up in the summer. It's something we can talk about with customers. And then in the fall and winter, they're not there. And so you get the sun beating against the south when we want that heat, um, but shading it during the, the summer when, and especially in the late summer, it's the, they're the biggest. Um, so they're going to shade the most. So again, that was super cool. And that would be something obviously we'd love to see at, you know, more and more, more and more places. Um, Talk to us about the foodscaper because you've got that. It's a new resource you're putting together. It's kind of like tying together everyone who's doing these foodscaping across the country. Yeah, that's kind of the goal, you know, is just to create what what we see as kind of like the first um, website dedicated to the foodscaping industry. And we mm -hmm. really see foodscaping as kind of an industry that is emerging. And right now it's being... Uh, talked about it with all different kinds of words. You know, you've got edible garden companies or edible landscaping companies or um, just all different kinds, like ecological gardeners um, for hire. There's all these different, sorry, my, my cat feeder is going off there. Um, <laughs> there's all these different terms that are being utilized to kind of talk about what I see as this, the profession, which is I help people grow food for a living. I'm meaning that's how mm -hmm. I make my living. Um, and there's a lot of people doing that, but we don't really have like any shared networks yet. Um, there's, there's very little infrastructure, you know, there's no foodscaping podcasts. There's no foods. Yeah. There's no, there's no book you can get about professional foodscapers. It's all, you know, hobbyist gardeners who are kind of, um, showing off what they do and what they learn. And, and of course those are, those are great, but they're not, you know, this isn't, this is a job for me and the folks who work with me. And there's a lot of other folks, 18 presenters who are going to be kind of talking. I know we'll get there, but there there's dozens of other foodscaping companies around the country where other people are making their living the same way. So we're trying to create a landing pad for where do, where do we go to learn about the foodscaping industry and um, so we've got tons of different articles up there and videos, and um, we're just kind of just getting getting that going. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Absolutely. Now, as part of that, you're putting together a summit around foodscaping. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Yeah, this is kind of our inaugural launch for education so that anybody who is interested in learning more about the food, we do what we do. You can go take, you know, we've got 20 plus presentations that are going to be um, on the summit and come and learn. We've got a few live panels that um, people are going to be able to come pop in and ask questions. We'll have a bunch of downloadable uh, documents and things that will help accompany some of the presentations. Just a lot of the things that um, 
will hopefully give people the confidence and and the know-how to kind of get started and and see how a bunch of other companies are doing this. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about, let's just talk about the opportunity for folks. So let's say, you know, you're farming, you're doing your couple acres of vegetables. What's the opportunity for those type of farmers to get into foodscaping? So I, I don't know a ton about the, the entirety of the opportunity because I'm in an urban context and I'm in a big metropolitan area, but I would suspect, you know, I think you'd be a great thought partner on this, Michael. I would suspect that there's an opportunity for foodscaping, um, as a, as a side gig profession, potentially in more small town markets and more rural markets, um, where the idea of having a foodscaping company and making a living doing that may not be a thing, but you may be the person in your area who's got the most food growing knowledge. You know, you may be the person who can come over and plant some fruit trees and set up a vegetable garden for somebody. And because you've got trucks and tools and equipment, you're probably don't really need to make much investment to make that happen. Um, and you might even be looking for, you know, winter work to maybe, uh, supplement by doing, you know, raised bed work or, um, irrigation things, uh, all the things that, you know, so much of what makes this possible for me to do was stuff I learned working on farms. Yeah. Hey, Thriving Farmers, where are you on your Thriving Farmer journey? So if you go to our website, growingfarmers.com, you can click on the assessment button, and that will take you to a form, ask you a few different questions, and that will help you figure out where you are on the five-stage Thriving Farmer journey. And what that does then is kicks you a customized PDF that gives you resources to know exactly what to focus on next in your business to go to the next level. So go to growingfarmers.com and click on the assessment. So I think, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right because here's the thing. So especially that you've got a green, most farmers are going to have a greenhouse and in a greenhouse, you're going to grow some vegetable transplants. But what if you not, and I'm not I'm going to use this word um, upsell, but it's what it means is like you offer another service to somebody. So they buy, spend $20 with you for some plants and then you can upsell them just maybe some compost and you buy it in by the truckload. So you can sell them a little bit because they have a hard time finding good compost. It's another service you can offer. And then you can, another service is I'm going to come to your backyard. We'll figure out the best spot to put your raised beds. And then I can have some raised beds constructed and and put them in. So, you know, they're going to be done right. And then obviously the other aspect of the irrigation. So now it's gone from a $20 sale to, you know, being able to give you some work in the off time of year. If you want to say, Hey, you know what? We'll put, install that this fall and winter when I'm starting to slow down on the farm and I need some winter work because they don't need that installed right away. Typically, um, I think there's massive opportunity here. One of the services we offered this spring was just garden tilling. Mm, I love and, that. <laughs> and we did two packages, one with um, just regular tilling. It ranged from like the, the, the cheapest was 50 all the way to $100 for a pretty large size. And then we offered for another like 20 bucks fertilizing of that. Yeah. And we just used our regular chicken fertilizer and everyone who got the fertilizer said, oh my gosh, I've never seen a garden grow so well. Because I think most of the time people just weren't putting any good fertilizer on. And the nice thing about the chicken fertilizer is it's long lasting. So it gives them long, you know, um, a good, you know, good full season support for their fertility needs. So um, that's the kind of stuff that I think it's, it's just a no brainer to start offering. But then when you start offering, let's say foodscaping, where it's actually designing all of this, And I think that's where your expertise comes back to is like, okay, this is exactly how to do it. 
you know, from my, my perspective is, you know, this is how we've operated all along. Let's just meld the two and then we can offer all these other services um, because yeah, people want to grow wonderful things. And as you said, people talk about that dream of, oh my gosh, I wish my yard looked like this. Or I wish my yard was like this. And again, that's what you designed in our right behind our house. Obviously, you designed the whole eight-acre property, but you did some really cool things. So you focused really on that backyard to really create this kind of oasis. And I mean, that's people, especially in this very stressful world. I mean, in the last year, it's become so much more stressful. And so I think if people can come home, unwind, sit in there, you know, pluck a few raspberries as they're walking through their backyard. That's just going to, you know, probably help them live longer. You know, we all know that stress is the number one killer. And if we can have all the backyards where we're just, you know, enjoying ourselves, eating a few raspberries, I think that's going to increase the living potential <laughs> of Americans again. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would add, Michael, the one other opportunity is more of just like growing, not just vegetable starts, but um, more oh, yeah. Perennial perennial plants, you know, maybe you don't want to be a foodscaper or even do any kind of side hustle as a foodscaper, yep. but yep. Uh, there are so many uncommon plants that are needed to make foodscaping possible. You know, I'm thinking to your design, like we put in a, but we've got yep. some tiny chestnuts in there and, um, so many of the, if you want to go plant a Chinese chestnut for a client, you know, there's one option right now, which is mail order in the spring and somebody's going to ship wow. you a, a bare root Chinese chestnut. Right. And then you, it's not going to have any leaves on it. Um, and you've got to deal with that as it comes bare root. If you had, what if somebody grew that out for a year or two and had a six, seven foot tall chestnut that looked like a, you know, a small tree, like the ones that yeah. you're seeing at the nursery. And then that, cause that's really one of the big things that we're working with is, a foodscaping company is getting plants that are big enough and nice enough that they meet a client's expectations. So uh -huh. we don't just put some <clears throat> tiny little whip in the ground and then say yeah. there, you know, there it is. So I think that there's an opportunity to use land base and equipment and tools to, to help grow out the types of plants. And it's not just trees. It's a lot of perennial vegetables and herbaceous plants. You know, for example, uh, one other quick thing is like, um, we have to grow all of our own asparagus out from seed because, oh, really? because, it's, um, it's incredibly hard to find, you know, uh, we do a lot of our planting in the fall, or even maybe we do the, our planting in, you know, late May. It's like all that bare root asparagus um, that so many farmers would plant, you know, you can't really pot those huge, those huge octopi up and, and um, grow, the, you mm -hmm. know, just have them available to plant in a, whenever you want. So we grow them out from seed and then we have them as starts that we can just pop in because we plant a lot of asparagus. Um, those are just types of, I think that partnering with local foodscaping companies could, could make that easier as well. Yeah. All right. So let's unpack that a little bit. Cause I think that absolutely is, is the, the other massive part is yes, you're growing these vegetable transplants, but then all of a sudden start adding these perennials in there. And if you can start showing people like, okay, so as you said, asparagus, comfrey, all these other things, which people are looking for um, in this spring, last spring, there was a run on comfrey trying to get, you know, uh, root sections of that. And so just trying to, you know, some of these things are, and again, this year we're already sitting down and starting to do our seed orders because we don't know what the seed industry is going to look like um, this next year. But as you said, you have Chinese chestnuts, all these other perennials, which are an absolute something that, again, if people know how to do it, so it's education too, is like, here's how you plant that, but then they also want it. So it's just a matter of, I wouldn't, we, we sold so many just strawberry plants this spring. Mm, um, 
Yeah. And again, that's just something that's so simple to do. Um, but imagine if we were offering, you know, all these other alternative berries and stuff and stuff that people are looking for as well, it would just be a huge value to the community. And you're going to be, your, your community will be so much more uh, resilient and uh, at food security. Because, you know, I think that's the thing we saw in 2020, massive challenges with the systems, with, you know, the supply systems. And that is only, I think, going to get crazier as we, over the next few couple of years. And I love the idea that you're talking about, we're talking about things like raspberries and chestnuts. Yeah. Uh, And so many of these crops, I think, are not crops you're growing on your farm. And so then they become, they don't become competitive at all. They're um, to your own other enterprises. They're just a value add where, um, you know, it completes the whole buffet of items that somebody is probably getting. They're getting their lettuce from you and they're getting all their other veggies, but you're not growing raspberries for them. And that's a really great thing to just have a little patch out in the yard on. Because let's talk about that. Raspberries are wonderful, incredibly perishable. And if you have a rainy season, you've lost all your money off of them. And so if you can sell them the plant and you have raspberries in everyone's yard, they're happy, you're happy, and everyone needs to eat more raspberries, which have high vitamin C and are good for you. So yeah, absolutely. I think that's, you know, a fabulous way to, you know, just be again, filling out the community and being able to get these crops. Cause it's like the chicken in every backyard. You know, you look at, um, you look at the economics of let's say chickens and cows, cows, the economics are a lot better than chickens because of, I, I think, well, it's the artificial low price of, of chickens and eggs in the store, but, you know, you kind of think about it. If everyone had six chickens in their backyard, we wouldn't have to have, you know, these, these, these chickens. And that would actually, you know, fulfill everyone's needs. So unfortunately our, our cities and towns, um, you know, usually put rules and regulations around having chickens. Um, yeah. And and here in our town, it's a hundred feet from property line, a hundred feet from your house. Oh yeah. It's quite restrictive. Um, basically they're just weeding out 99%. Can't be the hundred feet of your house. Yep. Yep. I was like, you know, what are they going to do? Come measure. And I was like, I'm going to put them where I want to, as long as I keep them hundred feet from the neighbors. Um, but basically it's so we, they, they can basically use that to outlaw chickens in 90% of the town. And basically only I would be able to have chickens because, you know, we have an eight acre parcel and it's very easy to keep hundred feet from the edge of, you know, the neighbors. So anyway, yeah, it's just, we've gone so far, you know, we have the McMansion slash, you know, just the cookie cutter, um, yards and there's, we don't, we don't even think about that kind of stuff. Yep. And we've made ourselves incredibly vulnerable to just the slightest ripple in the supply chain. So, I mean, I don't know if you talk about that, Matt. Do you guys actually talk about that at all in your marketing about how, you know, having your own food forest actually gives you a little bit more, you know, sustainability? And uh, yeah, yeah, it's definitely something that we talk about. Um, I would say that sadly, it's not, it's mm. not a super on point message for us because, um, you know, the truth is that a lot of our clients are wealthy. And they yeah. feel pretty invincible to a lot of these things. Money will fix it. So exactly. Just, yeah. And so I don't think it's a very common thought. You know, obviously it's, a, it, I wish it were, if I yeah. were being not, you know, I, I wish I could say that that was a common thing for so many of our clients, but um, certainly there is that one in 10 that that really is motivating for them. And that's a huge part of why they're interested in this. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. 
Um, so let's back to the summit. We've talked about, you know, kind of the different aspects of why you would want to, you know, why you want to become a, and what the opportunity is. And so this summit, you know, said like 18, 20 speakers that are just going to cover all different aspects. It's really helping them, you know, getting set up, to, you know, push the foodscaper as a website and all of that. Um, what kinds of things, who are they going to hear from? Who are the different folks they're going to hear from? Oh, man. So we have what, um, what I think, you know, we have so many of the kind of edible landscaping all-stars, um, people mm. that people that have been doing this a really long time. You know, two of our keynote speakers are, um, there's a guy, Jeremy Levitch of Nashville Foodscapes. He started, okay. food, so he, he's got, he started Nashville Foodscapes over 10 years ago. And um, he's going to be speaking on a bunch of their highlight projects. Um, we've got um, Brandy Hall. She has a company called Shades of Green Permaculture. Okay. And they're, they've also been around for over 10 years. And so I think these are people who can really speak to, you know, how they've made their living and started, you know, both of those companies have like 15 plus, wow. if not 20 people on staff. You know, so yeah. if you, get, you got 20 people foodscaping for a living. Um, and yeah. I think it really speaks to where we can go with this. Um, we've got like Michael Judd speaking. He wrote edible landscaping with yep. a culture twist and he wrote a book on pawpaws and, yep. um, so we, uh, we've got folks, you know, we've got folks from Portland all, all over the country, Portland and Vancouver over on, in that part of the world. Yep. So yeah, some of my, some of my favorites are a company called hatchet and seed. And, um, they're in British Columbia and they just do absolutely incredible work. And they've been doing this a long time too. Cool. And I'm sure like the different people will specialize and, and focus on different aspects of the whole foodscaping world. Oh, sure. Like some people are going to kind of talk about, you know, um, raised bed design mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. how they do that. And then other folks are going to talk about, you know, perennial vegetables for the edible landscape. Mm. So it's kind of all over the fat. And, and I should say that really quick as a definition, you know, we see foodscaping as primarily raised bed gardening and mm -hmm. edible landscaping. Yeah. The edible landscaping being all the, the we're going to plant a service berry tree in your yard. We're going to put beautiful herbs and around it. We're going to plant oregano and thyme and echinacea and all, you know, all kinds of other things Yeah. Um, to make it pretty. And then, then, then you've got the raised bed garden piece, which is we're usually building out of, out of cedar and, um, and we see those are those are kind of two different components of foodscaping, and they're both aimed at elevating the aesthetic of growing food. Now, and that's a bit different than profitscaping, which is what I had you push for on this property was literally okay, not necessarily anything should be edible, but we'll be able to profit off of it one way or the other. So you also included things like flowers, perennial flowers, and you included like the willows, which you really can't eat, but they're bee food and we can harvest them for the pussy willows and, and seed and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, that's the kind of little bit of distinction there, but again, it comes back to just, you know, what you can eat. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what are the dates for this? So we're looking at January 20th and 21st. Awesome. Yeah. And, so it's uh, a little ways out. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, we'll obviously, um, I think we're going to air this episode, obviously closer to that. So we'll try to get you, you know, like the side of mind and what's the website for that. It's the foodscaper.com. Okay. And then the summit is at what website you can sign up through, through that. the foodscaper. Yep. Okay, cool. So foodscaper.com. And, uh, what, what are you most excited about for the summit? Oh, man. 
I'm most excited just to see um, people come together and kind of meet other like-minded folks mm. and, and just see that um, there, I'm not alone in this. You know, I think that that's the biggest thing. And, and certainly it's mm-hmm. a big thing with farming too. You know, it can be, it's so scary. You know, there's so few models of other people doing it really successfully and making a living. And um, I think that hopefully this will be, be a place where you can go, you know, see presenters who are, who are doing this and as well as meet a bunch of other people who are wanting to learn this as well. And I think that that whole energy is what I love about like conferences and summits, you know, it's, it, it makes you feel like you're part of a community and maybe you're part of something that other people feel like this is a way to work, to do, do work for change that will hopefully make the world a little bit better. Yeah. And enjoy what you're doing, be out in the, the fresh air right. and all of that. Yeah. I think it's so important. I think, again, we have lived such a siloed life, you know, food comes from here and, you know, I live here and why can't we combine the two? And that's, you know, that's your mission, which is amazing um, to see that. And I mean, amazing to see just the progress, which has happened the last you know decade in that, that realm. So I'm super excited for this summit. I definitely will be attending, um, you know, getting all sorts of ideas for a, what we can sell to, uh, the folks in the area to help them in their yards and, uh, be just, you know, thinking about if we want to add that design slash installation arm and what that would look like too, because, um, that's a huge undertaking, especially for us when we're so busy with strawberry season in the spring, when people obviously want those kinds of things, they're thinking about it. Um, you know, what makes sense and how could we pull that off? So, Cool. Well, Matt, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you coming on and uh, we can't wait for the summit. And again, it's January 20th through 21st. Go to foodscaper.com for more information. Thanks, Michael. All right. A Thriving Farmers, next week on the podcast, we have Liz from Happy Hollow Farm. Super excited to have her. We chat about her 2021 Farmer of the Year Award from Moses. We chat about um, her, we deep dive into her employee management. We deep dive into her field production, how she has her CSA and farmer's market set up. And it's a great interview and one not to be missed. So join me next week to learn all about Happy Hollow Farm. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.